Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, June 2nd, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, the Trump-DeSantis brawl begins. We roast and ride with a cavalcade of GOP presidential hopefuls with more poised to join the cast of already declared candidates. And we dig for answers over the partial collapse of a six-story Davenport apartment building where three people remain unaccounted for. Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Barton, Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief. Aaron Murphy is off hiking the Appalachian Trail, which I just realized is probably a dated and not all that familiar reference for many of you. But bonus points to you podcast listeners who understand the reference to a disgraced former South Carolina governor whose bogus excuse in 2009 for hiking the Appalachian Trail took on a whole new meaning. With me this week, Lee Des Moines Bureau Chief, Caleb McCullough. Hello, Caleb. Hello, that is uh, Iowa Press guest Caleb McCullough as well, Tom. Uh, everyone can <laughs> tune in to my appearance Friday at 7.30 and also on Sunday at a time I don't remember. Put some nice. respect on his name. That's right. <laughs> Give him a raise. Nice, nice plug. Uh, Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Tom. And we've got Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good afternoon. Everybody's talking about the president and me. I'm never sure what I should say. (laughs) (laughs) And we've got Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Hello, Todd. Good day to you all. First up this week, um, I want to give some time to highlight uh, the amazing work that's being done by the folks at uh, the Quad City Times, including that of our own Sarah Watson, who have been tireless, thorough, and dedicated in their continuing coverage of the partial collapse of a historic six-story Davenport apartment building over the weekend. As I said earlier, uh, three people remain unaccounted for. Um, Sarah's and the Quad City Times staffs uh, has done an outstanding job of covering the collapse, uh, producing gripping, heartbreaking, and uh, groundbreaking reporting that revealed a contractor had warned of the building's collapse and that uh, Davenport City officials were aware of structural issues, had issued notices of violations and orders to vacate some of the apartments, as well as receiving uh, complaints from residents over the last three years. Um, It's truly great writing, great reporting, and a prime example of the importance of local news and the need to support local journalism and journalists like those at the Quad City Times. Um, Please subscribe to the Times and to your local paper and uh, follow their good work on social media. Um, Sarah, I'm just going to kick it off uh, or or throw it to you. Um, What's the latest? What do we know? Um, and what did your reporting reveal about what city officials knew about the condition of the building and what they did or didn't do to prevent it? Yeah, so uh, so yeah, so the latest is there's still three unaccounted for, like you said, um, uh, uh, this morning at a press conference at 10 a.m. Uh, there's still no updates on those three individuals but we could see starting yesterday that there were search and rescue teams on site and an expanded Iowa task force uh, search and rescue team. So uh, we saw canines searching the rubble, people in the windows shining lights, um, and their plan was to check and clear every room um, of any uh, signs of people. Uh, And so 
they finish that at sundown and have continued a recovery effort. Um, this morning, the officials were asked if there were any hits that the dogs had or any um, any remains found. And um, the mayor said that that uh, that they couldn't answer that right now. So um, so we're not sure, you know, updates to come, I'm sure. But uh, they've talked about how they're, uh, once demolition does begin, they're planning to take it down with sensitivity, um, knowing that this is likely uh, a place where uh, people's remains are. So, um, so yeah, so search and rescue came in. A lot of people have been asking, well, why didn't this come uh, on on Monday, on Tuesday, and uh, the fire chief today said that the structure was was really unstable on Monday and was moving, and it was at the time deemed unsafe to to enter for a rescue crews until it had uh, quote settled. Uh, and so then now this rescue team is on site and they're uh, they've been going into the building in and out and uh, have secured with long wood from Lowe's uh, to secure one side of the wall that uh, that is still deteriorating. And as far as our reporting on the building, I mean, the city, to their credit, released about literally hundreds of pages of documents of inspections and reports. And there were um, more than 100 code actions that the city had taken at that property just in the last three years. Lots of complaints of no heating, no hot water, no air conditioning, um, and actually a plug to uh, a story that um, will be coming out uh, tomorrow. Um, we've talked with two residents uh, whose apartments were in that part of the collapse that moved out literally in the days and weeks before this happened because they were noticing cracks in the ceiling and in the floors. And one person, uh, one of those residents did report that to, uh, uh, as a complaint to city officials. Um, and, but the complaint was closed because the resident was, had uh, agreed to break the lease and was moving out. So um, still very unclear exactly exactly specifically what caused the uh, the structure to fail, but it is very clear that there were a lot of problems. And as one resident told me, there were just too many signs um, that many parties seem to have missed. Yeah, so that's the, the thing that um, stands out to me and, and, and um, that I have the most questions about, and, and I'm sure a lot of other people do, is it seems like there were a lot of red flags. Um, why didn't any of those red flags lead to, I guess, some sort of intervention by the city to um, condemn the building, to, to vacate more apartments, or to... Um, I guess, move ahead with, I guess, more, um, I guess, forceful enforcement actions? Yeah, so what city, we, that the city officials have been asked that quite a few times and uh, city officials have pointed to um, uh, the building owner. So violations or, or uh, concerns were noted and the city required the um, contract or the building owner, excuse me, to hire a structural engineer to determine and assess the safety of the building, whether it was safe for residents to live in. So um, in February or January or February, um, a structural engineer made an emergency visit uh, to the site and but, det but uh, determined that with some shoring of the walls that it would, uh, it would hold up 
and be safe for tenants to live in, that there was no immediate risk. Um, and so work was performed, um, inspected by the city, and then um, and then additional work, uh, additional permits for work had just been filed uh, in the week before the collapse. Sarah, I, I was curious, um, how many of the, the people that were living in that building are could be considered like lower income uh, residents of one kind or another? That's a really good question. I don't have the answer to that right now. Oh, okay. Um, I, I know one thing that uh, when I've talked to people before for like other stories I've done about, you know, places that were red tagged or had to be like vacated completely because of, you know, substandard conditions of one kind or another. There's a weird balancing act sometimes between like there being dangerous situations in some of these buildings, but these people also not having a place to go. And I don't necessarily know if that was a balancing act in Davenport, obviously, because I'm not there doing the reporting you guys are. But I, I know from past things I've had to cover that that is one of these weird sort of things that city officials and other folks in you know, charge have to have to reckon with kind of. Definitely, definitely. And so in the documents that we were reviewing in 2020, there's a note um, on an inspection report, the neighborhood services director, Rich Oswald, uh, there was a, a reference to serious violations, though it didn't detail exactly what those were. And um, Rich Oswald, the uh, Davenport official, department director, he gave the go ahead to give the inspection and said, I'm not afraid to close this building down, go like go ahead for the inspection. Um, and, and it wasn't really clear what what those violations were, what at least yet, like what happened to uh, allow them to approve it and, and, you know, not close the building down. But, and I mean, Tom Barton, when he was working for the Quad City Times, he did a lot of reporting about another uh, apartment complex um, that uh, the city had condemned and residents were displaced. And that, I mean, that was a huge issue. I don't know if you wanna talk about that at all, Tom. Yeah, um, so that's the other thing that um, I guess raises a lot of questions for me is all of the um, grief uh, that the city took with regard to the Crestwood apartments and um, issuing the condemnations there for what seems to be uh, in this context, you know, less serious code violations. I mean, you didn't you didn't really have, you know, any structural issues with with the buildings there that obviously you did um, with um, the, the the Davenport Hotel, but it was more, um, you know, un, unsanitary conditions. It just it wasn't it wasn't habitable. It wasn't you, you couldn't live there. Um, but again, the city took a lot of flack and a lot of grief for that. And um, you know, there were similar concerns raised uh, and, and questions raised about um, the city's inspection process and its uh, in, enforcement actions and why the city let violations pile up to get to the point where it required having to condemn the buildings and displace, um, you know, a lot of low-income residents. And a lot of promises and assurances were made about 
revamping the inspection process um, and um, being more transparent in providing kind of an early warning system or advance notices to, to tenants about the status of um, inspections and letting them know if, um, you know, uh, the landlord failed an inspection and whether or not, um, you know, they were going to need to condemn uh, units to give them again, advanced warning and time to move out. Um, yeah, it's just, it's it's interesting to see how we've now reached this point um, in, in how, you know, you know, lessons learned from Crestwood, um, you know, seemingly didn't translate um, into, um, you know, kind of what we're seeing now with um with the Davenport Hotel. Um, but anyway, um, like I said, um great reporting and great work that's being done by the staff of the Quad City Times. Um, subscribe, follow them, check them out, go to qctimes.com. Um, just great storytelling there. Jared, did you have something else? Yeah, w- one other thing I was gonna say that's very unsettling about all of this. Um, you know. I remember doing stories when I was in Mason City about the average age of housing stock in the state. And Iowa, on average, has some of the oldest housing stock in the entire country. Um, like at least through 2018, a quarter of Iowa's housing units were built in 1939 or earlier. And I, I know, Todd, you were talking about this yesterday, too, that, you know, there's a lot of cities in Iowa with with aging buildings that should see this as a wake up call. Definitely. Well, and this is not the only building that is owned by um, this building owner, even just downtown. So like, I think there are a lot, there have been a lot of questions about um, what, what's planned for these other buildings and what, what kind of uh, stepped up inspection mechanisms can there be to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. Um, and the city right now has been pretty focused on like search and rescue and hasn't laid out a specific uh, timeline or, or or like specific steps other than just promising to to look at it. Yeah, yeah I, definitely. I don't, yeah, again, as, as Tom said, really outstanding reporting going on from your team over in Davenport. Uh, yeah, I mean, once we get past all of the, I mean, you know, recovery and all of these initial steps, you, you do wonder whether there's a statewide sort of impetus that, that to, to look at how cities, you know, enforce their codes. I mean, you know, always the, the, the dialogue at the, at the state house in the last several years has been, you know, well, we need to cut property taxes. We need to rein in local budgets. We have to do all of that. And, and, you know, Anytime you do that, you basically reduce the ability of the cities to fund services. And one of those services is to, you know, be able to inspect buildings and hire structural engineers when there's trouble. And and so it's expensive. And I mean, this I really do think this should be a wake up call, because as Jared says, I mean, I mean, the this state, you know, you look at the river towns, you look at you know, the old industrial towns that you, you know, your Mason cities and Fort Dodges and all those kind of places, a lot of old buildings. In fact, when I worked in Fort Dodge, there was a, 
an unoccupied apartment uh apartments on top of a bar called the Dodger Tap and it just one day collapsed uh so these problems are out there and i you know i i don't i don't know that the legislature is interested but i i think they probably should be interested in in how cities can access funding to you know make sure they can do these inspections and make these repairs and 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 keep these buildings structurally sound so i guess we'll see going forward all right Shifting gears, uh, since this is uh, on Iowa politics, let's get into the politics part of it. Um, so Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis sharpens his knife, the Florida governor, uh, seen as a leading challenger to former President Donald Trump in the race for the GOP nomination, was back in Iowa this week, this time as a declared presidential candidate. DeSantis is trying to strike a balance between introducing himself uh, to voters and criticizing Trump. Uh, during a two-day swing through the state earlier this week, DeSantis emphasized his biography and his accomplishments as governor of Florida, but had a few barbs for Trump. They included attacks like, I can serve two terms, Trump would be a lame duck, I'm focused, Trump is not. And Trump is kind of a jerk. Trump, uh, his campaign and his allies, meanwhile, attacked the Florida governor over Social Security, Medicare, abortion, a national sales tax, book bans, overusing the word woke, and his fight with Disney and how he pronounces his name. Jared, you covered uh, DeSantis at an event just outside of Sioux City. What stood out to you about DeSantis' visit, uh, and how did Iowa GOP voters respond? Um, there were a few things that um, that stood out to me. First was um, DeSantis' message to people at um, Port Neal Welding in uh, Salix was not that much different from his message at the Feenster family picnic in Sioux Center earlier in May. Like he's really sticking to a script that touts his accomplishments, um, uses the word woke a lot as uh, Trump has now been criticizing him for. And then also a lot of these DeSantis speeches are poking holes in the idea, like you said, Tom, of um, a second Trump term. But he, he's been doing all of that, at least with some of the stuff I've seen, without directly saying Trump's name while at the podium. Um at in Sioux Center and in Salix on uh, Wednesday, both of those times, he had those criticisms that were clearly directed at Trump while he was giving his main speech, but he didn't actually come out and say he was talking about former President Trump. Um, as for some of the applause lines, uh, the crowd really liked when he talked about um, choosing freedom over Fauciism. Um and the crowd also really liked him talking about um, giving the death penalty to people convicted of pedophilia. And they uh, they clapped for him when he talked about um, merit trumping uh, identity politics. But um, that, that said, none of the none of the voters I talked to had fully made up their minds. You know, all of them just kind of said they support the nominee no matter who it was. Although I did talk to a. 69-year-old um, resident from Sergeant Bluff, who did say that he think it might he thinks it might be time for some new blood. When I asked him about having any reservations about Trump, so if there's any you know 
issues that some of these people I'm talking to have had problems with as it relates to Trump. It's the the age thing. And I didn't really hear anyone talk about the, the term thing necessarily. So um, how, how do you feel, uh, I guess, uh, DeSantis did during his two-day swing in Iowa to um, cement himself as the main alternative to Trump in an expanding field of Republican candidates? I mean, it it, it definitely helps uh, to kind of draw those contrasts when he is talking about some of these things, you know, of like the, the Trump being term limited going in, Trump being older and maybe not having the stamina, those sorts of things. And another thing that he kind of um, brought up that was clearly a criticism of Trump and meant to be a kind of contrast between the two of them is he talked about how if he had been in the White House in 2020, um, he would have basically fired Anthony Fauci as soon as possible. And again, that was a moment where he didn't say, you know, Trump directly and that Trump made a mistake there. But I mean, that's clear who he's going after by saying that, that, that Fauci should have just uh, been sent packing with, with his bags. So I, I think, you know, obviously he's still pretty far behind in a lot of these national uh, polling averages we're seeing, but I mean, the, the best thing for him to do is to keep drawing those kinds of contrasts with Trump, because that that's who his competition is at this point. It's not it's not Biden. It's not anyone else that's running. It's it's just Trump. Yeah. And uh, Trump was also in Iowa this week, uh, stopping at a machine shed restaurant uh, in a Des Moines suburb where he addressed a conservative club and took questions. He also met with faith leaders at a luncheon in Des Moines and taped a Fox News town hall with uh, Sean Hannity. Um, at candidate events across the state, it's common to hear Iowa Republicans say um, they like what Trump accomplished um, in office. Uh, they like his message, but not necessarily the messenger. They don't like the drama, baggage, and legal, legal battles that uh, surround the former president. Our absent podcast host, Aaron Murphy, asked Trump about this. The former president said the drama some Republican voters talk about is, in his view, precisely what makes him an effective candidate and president. He said, quote, without the drama, we wouldn't get elected. And without the drama, I wouldn't make it as successful, end quote. Todd, is he right? And if so, what does that mean for the likes of DeSantis and the rest of the field as they try to weaken Trump's grip on the GOP? Yeah, to a large extent, I think it's true. The drama does help him. It, it certainly gains media attention. I think it appeals to that sort of hardcore Trump base that appreciates or likes his sort of in-your-face, shake up the establishment, own the libs, attack the media sort of style. Uh, but as you suggest, it's a double-edged sword because there are a considerable number of Republicans out there who who like what he did, but would rather have someone who would follow his policy uh, as president, but but not carry with them all of the all of the various you know the the mean tweets and the and the lies and the and sort of the disjointed two-hour speeches and, and all of the stuff that comes along with with the Donald so uh but you know in a in a, as the field of candidates grow I mean Chris Christie's jumping in now I don't know what that makes it as far as numbers but 
Uh, the more candidates get in, the more they split up that Trump alternative vote. If his core holds together and likes the drama, then he's probably right that that may actually help him get the nomination again. But uh, if drama, though, includes multiple criminal indictments and things like that, I'm not I'm not sure that 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 that's kind of that that's going to help. I mean, like I say, his base is united, but, uh, you know, prospect of going to jail for felonies is, you know, even in this political climate is not optimal. Uh, and, you know, and DeSantis, I think, probably has the the best chance of bringing some Republicans together to coalesce because he sounded very Trumpy when he wasn't attacking Trump. I mean, his, his, you know, talking about we've got to impose our will in Washington and malignant ideology and woke and indoctrination. I mean, it's, it's very much in tune with, with Trump's, you know, American carnage message that the country is under siege by, you know, terrible socialists and, and others who would destroy it. So, I mean, I think that's, he's, he's doing a good job both separating himself from, you know, or, or arguing that he would be a better choice than Trump while also saying the sort of things that you wouldn't be surprised to hear Trump say. Yeah, uh, Todd, um, when I saw Aaron's reporting of, of Trump talking about the drama thing, I, I kind of chuckled to myself because I've, I've talked about that repeatedly on here too, that even though there are GOP voters who profess to like Trump but not the drama. There are so many who like Trump because of the drama. Mm -hmm. They 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 didn't necessarily care much about politics before him, but they got sucked in because they they find him entertaining. And they're going to stick with him no matter what. And I almost kind of find it interesting that there's a lens you could look at all this through now that that Trump is actually trying to be more moderate than DeSantis in the in the primary in some respects. Because I don't know that that'll cost him very much because of those people who will stick with him no matter what. And it might actually like pick up a few strays here and there somewhere in the primary. Uh, Trump was also asked if he would consider as his running mate, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, who's developed a national profile on the Republican Party in recent years. Um, the former president said that there are a lot of people he is considering and that whoever it is, quote, it'll be somebody who will be terrific, end quote. Um, Todd Reynolds has been heavily praised and courted by the GOP presidential field for securing legislation that's moved the, the leadoff Republican presidential nominating state to the right um, while she's played tour guide, consultant, cheerleader and maybe a little bit referee uh, while declared in prospective GOP candidates uh, crisscross the state. How do you foresee the 2024 Iowa Republican caucuses shaping Reynolds' political future? And what are the chances that we see here in the White House? Well, I, you know, I think she enjoys the, you know, first of all, the, the governor and I, I we, we don't talk, you might be surprised. So I don't know a lot. But, uh, you know, I, I think she enjoys the national spotlight. It's clear she's made lots of appearances on Fox and she likes the fact that her, you know, the legislation that they've been passing has gotten national accolades from from various conservatives. Uh, you know, and, I, and I, I, I would be surprised if she 
endorses anyone before the caucuses. I think she enjoys sort of being the tour guide and being someone who can introduce them and, and you know, give a speech of her own before they talk and tout and, and, and bask in the, in the accolades that those candidates are, are giving her uh, for, for those policies. You know, as far as the White House, I, I mean, I don't know that she has any national ambitions. I mean, she, it's easy to see all that national attention that she's gotten and, and conclude that maybe she does. Uh, you know, it, she'll, I think she'll definitely be on a list of people who could be someone's running mate. I mean, whether it be Trump or DeSantis or, or somebody else. I mean, uh, you know, Iowa's going to go red again, probably in the 2024 presidential election. So it doesn't necessarily give you any electoral advantage. But I don't think vice president gives you a lot of electoral advantage generally. I mean, there's a lot of, I'll pick someone from this region or that region. It's, I mean, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But she would be somebody that clearly could go out and be what a vice presidential candidate is. And that's sort of an attack dog who is able to, you know, say the things that about those policy positions and defend them and, and, and all of that. So, you know, if she were asked, I think most people take the job, even though it's not a great job. Most, not very many people turn it down. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I'm not sure if she, she has national ambitions, but I definitely think she's, set herself up uh if if the opportunity presents itself and i think we should um also definitely not take out of consideration uh somebody we're going to talk about in a minute here um senator joni ernst she is you know the number four republican in the senate she uh was on donald trump's you know list yep. of possibilities back in 2016 so you know i don't know who's more likely but um i think either one yeah i think ernst has a has a good shot of being on that list as well Caleb, I, I would say at this point, Ernst would be more likely, if only because I did see Trump say that Kim Reynolds wouldn't have got elected without him. And usually when he <laughs> says that, that that means that uh, somebody's starting to fall out of favor uh, with him. So yeah. I, I don't know if Reynolds is going to be uh, on that short list for Trump. <laughs> yeah, I, you can kind of see that, like I say, I don't think she's going to endorse anyone before the caucuses, but you can kind of see that she... Uh, she and DeSantis would make an, you know, I think DeSantis would consider her, you know, a sort of, I mean, they're calling it, you know, you're Florida, the, you're Florida of the Midwest. No, we're Iowa, the Iowa we're Iowa, the Southeast. And then I think, you know, being, you know, DeSantis went to Utah and said that Florida was the Utah of the Southeast. So I don't know, we got to sort that whole thing out what, what we are. And of course I said that we were North Florida and, and we all know what happened but um <laughs> so uh yeah i and ernst would be an interesting possibility i you know she would she was pretty far up the list for trump i think she was she was in the top three at least uh but yeah she it's a good thing she didn't have to preside over the Senate on January 6th, she sort of, sort of dodged, a, dodged a problem there. But yeah, that's true. Ernst would be an interesting choice. Yeah. So as uh, Caleb mentioned, uh, Reynolds BFF, Iowa Republican U.S. Senator uh, Joni Ernst, will host her annual fundraiser Saturday at the Iowa State Fairgrounds in Des Moines where GOP candidates will ride motorcycles, flip pork, roast President Joe Biden, 
and make their case to hundreds of potential Republican Iowa caucus goers. The roast and ride will be the biggest presidential cattle call of the year so far, with nearly all of the major candidates participating, except for Trump. That list includes DeSantis, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina U.S. Senator Tim Scott, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, Michigan businessman Perry Johnson, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and conservative talk radio host Larry Elder. Uh, Caleb, this is the beginning of what is likely to be a jam-packed summer season of campaigning. Candidates will have the chance to test out their campaign stump speeches in front of hundreds of conservative Republicans and the national press. Uh, what will they talk about and will they go after Trump? Yeah, I think um, you'll see them stick pretty close to their campaign stump speeches um, that they, you know, give around the state. If I were to guess, um, you know, this is going to be for some of them one of the larger, one of the larger, largest crowds they've been able to speak to thus far. I think they want to introduce themselves, give out their biographical information, kind of make uh, make that connection, and then go into some of those policy priorities. Um, I think you'll be able to keep a running tally of mentions of the border and wokeness and gender ideology and, and some of those common uh, common issues that they bring up. Um, and then I think as far as criticizing Trump, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we'll hear more digs at Biden than at Trump. Um, you know, candidates have tended to not not directly criticize Donald Trump yet um, or so far. Uh, you know, they'll they'll I'm sure they'll say things like we need to look forward as a party, we need a new generation of leaders, things like that. But I, I don't know uh, what we'll hear about Trump uh, specifically. So Jared, the roast and ride, it seems, is um, more about spectacle than uh, maybe so much the, the speeches. Um, what do candidates, including those lesser known candidates who are low in the polls, need to do to stand out from the crowd? Um, well, first they uh, they got to look cool as hell, uh, riding a hog down an open road, you know, just just flooding that thing and and you know hitting hitting top speed, uh, going down uh, going down the highway. Um, I don't know if at this point there's one thing any one of them who isn't DeSantis or Trump can do to kind of break out. Because right now, that's what's sucking up all of the oxygen in the primary is Trump and DeSantis going back and forth. Um, so if they if they want to break through, I I do think that they should start with going at those two as as fiercely as possible. I, I know you'll have primary voters sometimes profess that they don't like it when there's a lot of conflict between candidates, but I've never really fully bought that, and I think that. When you're polling in single digits, which all of them are except for Trump and DeSantis, you know, ideas and policies alone aren't going to raise you up into viability. So, you know, lob some uh, lob some rhetorical bombs. See what happens. All right. Um, and uh, that crowd is expected to grow. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who is expected to ride a motorcycle with Ernst on Saturday, uh, former New Jer Jersey Governor Chris Christie and current North Dakota Governor Doug uh, Burgum are all preparing to formally enter the race next week. 
Um, Caleb, you wrote this week that Pence will launch his presidential campaign during a Des Moines rally on June 7th. Um, how does the addition of Pence, Christie, and Burgum affect the dynamic of the GOP race for president, where you have Trump, the dominant front runner, DeSantis, you know, the maybe diminished but still principal challenger, and everybody else? Yeah, um, you know, Pence's entry makes some difference. He he's been kind of fighting for third place with Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy for the past couple of months um, in, in polling. Uh, Christie and Burgum, I, I, I don't know how much of a chance they have, as, as Jared mentioned, unless unless something drastic happens. I, I just don't see them breaking ahead at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, as uh, once somebody gets in the race, you'll see them making more direct uh appeals uh as you know to their credit and also to the to try to discredit the other candidates um but you know i i think um in in regards to this being kind of a trump versus desantis race uh, i don't think trump minds any of these new challengers because it just continues to fracture um the kind of anti-trump block of the party and uh you know desantis has to continue to fight to um to get those those voters to you know try to coalesce um, behind him uh, while they are trying to pull away from his support. So, you know, if if all of this uh, if 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 this field remains this big, you know, up through the caucuses in New Hampshire, it, based on polling now, it, it looks hard to see um, who can who can beat Trump. But but we'll see. Caleb, um, one thing I can already see now in my in my mind's eye, if I'm future casting, is. Chris Christie not winning, because I don't think that'll happen, but going after Ron DeSantis the exact same way he went after Marco Rubio in 2016. I, I can already see that now because like there are definitely similarities between DeSantis, how DeSantis is perceived in this race and how Rubio was perceived in 2016 as like these young hopefuls for the party and everything who who are shaky on, on certain things. I can already see Chris Christie uh, going after him. Hi. I love that the governor of North Dakota is is, is going to run for president. We're, we're finally going to have a candidate that comes here and doesn't complain about the weather. You know, is this, he he's he's going to come here for the weather. This is like a this is like Iowa should be like winter vacation spot for people from Nodak. It's it's just you know it's I can't wait to hear what he has what he has to say. Maybe, Maybe he'll that- address snow removal and things that we iowans really care about that time of year maybe they'll call iowa the north dakota of the south <laughs> yeah we'll be <laughs> we'll be the north dakota of the south upper midwest <laughs> something like that <laughs> oh man uh, that's, nice. that's, uh, they're gonna put north dakota on the map <laughs> my first question is my first question governor is why the hell isn't there just one dakota <laughs> i mean <laughs> i think that's the big issue He's basically going to have to be on the road, like, and not in North Dakota from like September on, because he won't be able to get back home because of the the road <laughs> conditions in in North Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us on streaming audio services like iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, 
Make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. Um, you can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, which is thegazette.com. Lastly, don't forget that the work of every everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Mason City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. Imperfect will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Caleb, Sarah, Jared, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Tom Barton. Thanks for listening. Facebook shit. Peace out. Perfect. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.